this podcast covers serious crimes and subject matter that may be distressing to some audience members. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, and welcome to the sixth episode of True Crime on Our Minds. I'm Dawn, and with me is my co-host and sister. Hi, I'm Debbie. Today's episode deals with the hate crime that took place in South Carolina in the early 90s. Before we jump in, we want to stress that we are presenting the facts as they were reported. Our focus is on the heinous way the victim was murdered, our memories of living in the area at the time of the crime, and our ties to the military. But before we get started, we want to do our city factor crap. The crime being discussed took place in two cities, North Charleston and Somerville in South Carolina. Debbie and I grew up in North Charleston and I went to middle and high school in Somerville. And uh, my husband and I lived in Somerville, which is a suburb of Charleston. And speaking of the fact that you went to Somerville High School, did you see that that principal from Somerville High School was arrested for murdering his wife? Was he your principal at that time? He wasn't my principal, but I I think he was our sister Amy's. Yeah, she said he was hers. Yeah, I was trying to find out if um, I know that he had been a wrestling coach. And so I wasn't sure if he was at the school at the time I was there. The name sounded really familiar, but it's just awful. Do you still have your yearbooks? You could go back and look. I mean, I know I can't remember that many years ago. As, as I said, I'm getting ready for my high school reunion was not at Somerville High School. But yeah, I thought that was really interesting. We may have to delve into that and a later episode. I think so. And I don't have my yearbooks, but I'm going to try to find that information out. It just was really, really sad what had happened. I I belong to the Somerville alumni group on Facebook and there's been a lot going back and forth about it. But, you know, we want to make sure that we have our prayers sent to the family of the victim because I know that they're going through a really hard time right now. I know it's a shame that um, our brother Tim isn't with us anymore because he would know he knew all the facts about everything. He was really good at small details. Yes, yes, he was. So for the city factor crap, I chose Somerville, which is actually a town. And Debbie, you're really going to like this one. So factor crap. Somerville is the birthplace of sweet tea. Oh, I'll say yes. It seems like a real Somerville thing. It does, doesn't it? But Mm -hmm. the answer is maybe. (laughs) Oh, that wasn't one of my options. (laughs) It really depends on the definition of sweet tea and how it's made. Iced tea is not the same as sweet tea, nor is sweetened tea, or rather the process of having iced tea that is later sweetened. You know, you order iced tea and then you add packets of sugar, which mostly settle in a gooey layer on the bottom of your glass. So you have to keep stirring it with that long handled spoon. (laughs) Yeah. And the sweet tea, as you know, of course, because you love sweet tea, I drink unsweetened tea, is the process of boiling water, steeping tea, and adding sugar before it's cooled so that it dissolves. It is then stored in a pitcher or jug, and when desired, yes, desired by Southerners, it's poured over ice, and that's how you get your iced sweet tea. I didn't even know they made it a different way until I went to visit my husband's family in northern Indiana, and I asked for sweet tea, and they were like, there's sugar on the table. I was (laughs) like, no, no, no. In fact, my youngest, her first 
first words were sweet tea. Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) Well, I have a little bit more history on tea. So tea plants were shipped to the U.S. beginning in the 1700s. However, cultivation was unsuccessful until the late 1800s. Somerville's Pinehurst Tea Plantation, owned by Dr. Charles Shepard, is recognized as the first successful American tea plantation, which produced between 1988 and 1915. Somerville is still the only area in the United States that grows a variation of tea usually cultivated in China. In October 2013, the Sweet Tea Trail was opened in Somerville, beginning at exit 199A on I-26 and winding through Azalea Square, where shops and restaurants feature all things tea. From there, the trail continues through downtown Somerville, to Azalea Park and ends at the Plantation District where Middleton Place. Where I got married. Yeah, Magnolia Gardens where I was married and Drayton Hall Plantations are located. In June of 2016, Somerville made the Guinness Book of World Records when the town debuted Mason, a 2,524 gallon jug of sweet tea. The brew was made with 210 pounds of loose leaf tea and 1,700 pounds of sugar. Wow. Yeah, I know. It was was initially used cooling 300 pounds of ice, but several hundred additional pounds were added to meet guideline requirements of 45 degrees. The Somerville Chamber has trademarked the tagline, the birthplace of sweet tea. So whether they can actually prove this is still to be seen. There's much controversy about that out on the internet. Some say that it was created at the St. Louis World's Fair. I also read one hypothesis that was called the Alabama sweet tea hypothesis, which suggests that around World War II, it was a common practice in the Deep South to sweeten the process by dissolving sugar in the hot, fresh brew tea. And then this practice slowly made its way throughout the South. Regardless of how it was created, it's definitely a Southern staple. And uh, I think that most Southerners' blood runs on sweet tea. Well, I use the artificial sweetened tea and I don't make my own anymore. I buy a certain brand and I have a glass of it right now, right with me. Awesome. So that's a light way to start a very troubling episode. On December 30th, 1992, a motorist driving down U.S. Highway 78 near Somerville, South Carolina, came upon a grisly scene. Police were called to the site where a young woman with six gunshots had been dumped along the side of the road. She had been shot five times at close range through the jaw and once in the arm. The victim was alive when the motorist found her, but died at the scene before medical assistance arrived. It would be a couple of days before police identified the woman as 25-year-old Melissa McLaughlin. Missy, as she was known to friends and family, had moved from Wixom, Michigan to North Charleston a year earlier. She was described as a friendly, easygoing, trusting person with a love for the outdoors and singing. The night of her murder, she had been at a nightclub with her fiance, John Owen, but they had an argument early into their evening and Missy left the club to walk home to the residence where she had been staying with Owen. It was actually where Owens lived. On the way, she was picked up and given a ride by North Charleston police. When she arrived at the residence, the door was locked and she didn't have a key. After knocking to get in with no one answering, she decided to walk to a nearby pool hall where a friend worked. It was less than half a mile from the residence and Missy had made this walk numerous times, but she 
never made it to the pool hall that night. By Saturday, January 2nd, investigators had traced Missy's whereabouts on the night of the murder to a trailer off of Stall Road in North Charleston. A search of the mobile home provided evidence that Missy had been in the trailer and linked her to its occupants. The next day, Sunday, January 3rd, 21-year-old Craig Rice was arrested and charged with accessory after the fact of sexual assault and murder by North Charleston police. Dorchester County Sheriff's Department also charged him with accessory after the fact of murder. Rice was enlisted in the Navy and was serving aboard the guided missile cruiser Richmond K. Turner, stationed at the Charleston Naval Base. And I didn't understand why the sheriff and the police were charging him. Because the crime took place in two different counties. The trailer was in North Charleston, but where the body was found was in Dorchester County. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Also on January 2nd, police arrested 22-year-old Roger Williams, charging him with misprision. Williams had admitted that he had knowledge of the murder. However, police believed that he also had been a willing participant in the crime. At the time, investigators could not prove this because Williams refused to cooperate with police. Additional charges by Dorchester County Sheriff included accessory after the fact of murder and first degree criminal sexual conduct. Because Rice Williams and others being interviewed were or had been on active duty in the Navy, the Naval Investigative Services, or NIS, was brought in to assist with the investigation. Over the next couple of days, police would arrest four more suspects, including two women. The first woman, 30-year-old Edna Jenkins was charged with accessory after the fact of murder and accessory after the fact of kidnapping. She received the additional charge of accessory after the fact of murder by Dorchester County. Her bond was set at $150,000. The other woman was Indira Simmons, 21. She was captured in Quakertown, Pennsylvania and charged with accessory before the fact of murder, accessory after the fact of murder, accessory before the fact of kidnapping, and accessory after the fact of criminal sexual conduct. Her bail was set at one. Captured with Simmons was her boyfriend, 21-year-old Matthew Paul Williams, also known as Hal Miller. And because we have two defendants with the last name Williams, we are going to refer to Matthew Williams as Miller. He was charged with conspiracy to commit kidnapping, conspiracy to commit sexual assault, conspiracy to commit murder in addition to charges of murder, kidnapping, and first-degree criminal sexual conduct. He was initially denied bail, but once he was extradited back to Charleston, his bond was set at $1.2 million. Naval officials confirmed that Miller was a discharged sailor who had been stationed at the Charleston Naval Base. The sixth suspect in custody was 25-year-old Danny Dwayne McCall, who was charged with conspiracy to commit kidnapping, accessory before the fact of murder, first-degree criminal sexual conduct, conduct, and kidnapping. His bail was set at $300,000. On January 7th, they caught up with their seventh suspect, 21-year-old Matthew Carl Mack at a Detroit, Michigan bus station. After an initial warrant had been issued for Mack's arrest for murder, NIS staked out his parents' house in Georgia. They blew their cover by approaching a man that they suspected may be Mack getting out of a cab at the residence. NIS subsequently spoke to Mack's mother and learned her son had called asking for money and her husband was on his way to Detroit to help him. Detroit police apprehended Mack at a bus station without incident. He was charged by Dorchester County Police with murder and by North Charleston Police with kidnapping, conspiracy to kidnap, 
conspiracy to commit sexual assault, first degree criminal sexual conduct, and conspiracy to commit murder. He was extradited back to Charleston, served with four new warrants, and bail was set at $1.1 million. But there was still one last suspect who was on the run. Investigators put out a nationwide manhunt for the person they believed was the shooter. Petty officer, second class, Joe Gardner, the man accused of shooting Missy to death, was active duty in the Navy. Gardner and Mack had served with Rice aboard the Richmond K. Turner. Gardner had been on leave at the time of the murder, but when he failed to return to duty, his status was changed to AWOL or absent without leave. NIS and police tracked him to Detroit, Michigan and had a house where he was supposed to be staying at under surveillance. A search of the property produced a bloodstained shirt and other evidence. They also found a car driven by Gardner abandoned there. Rice, also from Detroit, was suspected of providing both Mack and Gardner with locations in Michigan to hide out. Gardner was charged with conspiracy to commit murder, conspiracy to commit kidnapping, conspiracy to commit sexual assault, murder, kidnapping, and first-degree criminal sexual conduct. It's a lot of charges. Upon questioning those in custody and reviewing evidence taken from the trailer, it soon became apparent that Missy's death was premeditated. You see, she had been abducted, gang-raped, tortured, and shot to death because of her gender and the color of her skin. Missy was white. All eight suspects are black. Mac had told police that Missy's murder was because of 400 years of oppression, and that's in quotes, which is a reference to how blacks had been treated in America dating back to the 1600s when they were first brought to this country as slaves. In addition to Mac's statement, police recovered a four-page document titled X-Man, which stated that blacks were justified in seeking revenge. Several of the suspects kept repeating the same story. The kidnapping, rape, and murder of a white woman had been planned. Police were hesitant to announce that the murder had been racially motivated for fear it would cause unrest in the community. But the thing was, it wasn't the police who had come to this conclusion. It's what the suspects said was the motive. When they gathered in the mobile home that night, it was for the purpose of finding a white woman kidnapping, raping, and murdering her. So as you can imagine, the fact that six black men raped, tortured, and murdered a white woman in the South had the potential to spark racial tension. Missy's family made a public statement stating for racial calm. Claire McLaughlin, Missy's father, stated, and I quote, revenge is no way to solve a problem. I am pleading with all of you, regardless of color, race, or nationality, to attend church services and pray not only for our daughter, but also the other families who are deeply shocked and saddened by the acts of their loved ones. I ask that each of you who hear this please pray for the strength to maintain your dignity and the wisdom to turn this troubled world of ours into a world of peaceful coexistence, unquote. I think that was very exceptional of him considering what he was going through. Yeah, definitely. Patricia McLaughlin, Missy's mother, did not believe the crimes had anything to do with Mac's claims of revenge for 400 years of racial oppression of blacks. She stated, and a quote, it's just an excuse. It does not justify it. I think of them as animals, unquote. South Carolina State Senator at the time, Robert Ford, stated the defendant's claims that the crime was racially motivated as far-fetched 
and instead that it was committed by individuals who were drunk and on drugs. He also stated that the black community was a hundred times more upset than the white community because the brutal crime was committed against an innocent woman by some thugs who happened to be black. And just some background on Senator Ford. He was born in New Orleans and his parents were influential in the African-American community. He had been very active in civil rights movement dating back through college, and he'd even worked for Martin Luther King Jr., Ford was very concerned with how the white community would react. He stated, when a black commits a crime like this, all black people feel some kind of pain because they know why white people are going to look at them like a villain. But when Jeffrey Dahmer and other serial killers do all this brutal killing, white people have no feeling about it because they know it's an individual. A week after the reports on the killing, North Charleston police reported that there had been no incidents so far related to the crime. Now, this is not to say that there weren't rumblings. The new Susan Courier had a nearly full page of commentary on the crime and comments made by various public officials. For the most part, the message was, quote, mutual respect and, quote, take the focus off race. And just as a side note, this incident happened to be eight months after four police officers, three of whom were white, were acquitted of using excessive force in the severe beating of Rodney King in Los Angeles. And for those of you who are not familiar with that case, you should definitely Google it. Less than three hours after the verdict, riots began in Los Angeles and several areas of the city were set ablaze. Later in the story, this incident comes up in a statement suggesting that what happened in LA played a role in the alleged motivation of this crime. And I can see how law enforcement and the Black community would be on high alert for any type of retaliation. We are all aware that racism exists. I personally believe that evil is colorblind and that you simply can't look at someone and determine by the color of their skin, their religion, their social status, or even their accent that they are capable of such a crime. How many podcasts have we listened to when the perpetrator was what appeared to be a normal law-abiding citizen until they weren't? I think that just humans are widely unpredictable. And just to interject, we aren't here to spark any kind of controversy. We are simply reporting what happened, what the defendant said was the motive, the evidence that was found, and what the temperature of the community was at the time. To us, this crime was about six men who premeditated the rape and murder of a woman. And also, I think for both of us, uh, but particularly me, the fact that they were or had been in the Navy cuts very close to home. At the time this happened, I worked on the Naval Base as a program director for single sailors. So I was around men like these who perpetrated this crime on a daily basis. What I did was schedule cookouts, events, activities, and even trips for single sailors who lived either on the ships or in the barracks. My office was actually in the barracks, so I was around these young men and women all the time. I had friendships with many of them of all races, and I trusted them to help me on many occasions. I felt safe on the base and around the military in general. We'd been raised in the military. So it was a a really big wake up call that you really never know anyone. Oh, yeah. Like we mentioned before, we actually grew up on military bases. Of course, it was the Air Force, but where these active duty members work and live and our parents never gave a thought to letting us run all over. We never locked our doors. We really felt safe. It was our own little small town community. And that's why it's so ironic that two of the six episodes that we've done have dealt with men who had been in the service in Charleston 
and had committed pretty horrible crimes. I know, it's it's pretty scary. A memorial service was held at the church in Iona, Michigan, where Missy was baptized. In Charleston, hundreds of churches, including more than 200 in Black communities, also held memorial services for Missy and shared prayers for racial peace and harmony. Details of what happened that night started to come out. Missy was walking on the side of the road when Gardner pulled over. She was allegedly abducted and taken back to the trailer where Mac, Miller, Williams, and Simmons resided. Reports indicated that Missy was then raped by several of the suspects. The two women, Simmons and Jenkins, were in the mobile home but did nothing to stop the attack or assist Missy. One article stated that after hours of rape and torture, Missy was made to wash and bleach and hydrogen peroxide to remove any evidence, but this would later be disputed by the pathologist. After the men were done with her, they wrapped a towel around her head, forced her into a car, drove about 14 miles from where the attack took place into Somerville. There, they shot Missy five times in the head, pushed her from the car, and left her for dead. The reason it took two days to identify her is because she did not have any identification on her when she was found. And as the investigation progressed, many of the defendants received additional charges. For example, it was believed that McCall was in on the plan from the beginning and upon being directed to shoot Missy, had the weapon in his possession. Jenkins was accused of providing one of the defendants with the handgun, removing evidence from the trailer and helping one of the suspects flee. Williams was accused of allowing the suspects to wash their clothes in his washing machine and use a hose to clean out the car Missy was shot in. In December of 1993, the two women, Jenkins and Simmons, pleaded guilty in Dorchester County. Jenkins' plea included accessory after the fact of murder and two weapons-related charges. Simmons pled guilty to misprison of a felony, which is withholding information from the police. Since prosecutors were seeking the death penalty for several of the defendants, they wanted clarification from the state attorney general's office on whether prosecuting them on rape charges would jeopardize the death penalty cases. In South Carolina, the death penalty is reserved for murders committed with aggravating circumstances, such as rape. Prosecutors question whether the trying the other sexual assault cases would preclude sexual assault from being an aggravating circumstance in the death penalty case. So Mac was the first of the men to go on trial. His jury selection began in May 1994. Even though he is not suspected of actually shooting Missy to death, he could be found guilty under South Carolina's legal theory, the hand of one is the hand of all. Prosecutors were seeking the death penalty, but in order for that to happen, jurors would first have to find Matt guilty of murder. They would then have to find in a separate part of the trial that the murder was accompanied by kidnapping, rape, or torture. If the jury was unable to make these conclusions, Mac would receive life in prison and depending on the circumstances of the conclusions that they made, could be eligible for parole after serving just 20 or 30 years. That doesn't seem right. Mm-mm. On May 25th, 1994, Gardner was put on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. This was just one day before Mac's trial was set to begin. Investigators began to worry that Gardner may have slipped over the Canadian border, which could have complicated extradition if he was captured in the country. Historically, Canada has not been cooperative in extraditing fugitives who face the death penalty. Since March of 1993, investigators and attorneys have been under a gag order, meaning they could not discuss any details regarding the case or the trial. During Mac's trial, a naval criminal investigator violated the order by telling another agent who was supposed to testify about his own testimony, which included statements Mac made after being caught in Detroit. The defense tried to have the agent barred from testifying to the jury. However, the judge ruled 
that the investigator's violation was not that severe. However, he could be held in contempt of court for disregarding the judge's orders. Missy's fiance, John Owen, took the stand to testify. He discussed in more detail the fight he and Missy had had that fateful night. He stated that Missy became upset when he left the bar with a man and two women to smoke marijuana. Drunk, she accused Owen of cheating on her and talked about having sex with other men in the bar. Outside, she stopped to talk to several white men in the parking lot before starting to walk home. She was picked up by police who had received a call that a woman, who appeared to be drunk, was walking in and out of traffic. Once at the residence she was staying at, she banged on the door because she didn't have a key, but left before anyone had a chance to open the door. Owen described Missy as being extremely jealous because her former fiancé had run off with her best friend. Owen also said Missy previously had a cocaine problem, but had been clean for a while. Owen left the bar to look for her before returning home to wait. Williams, one of the other defendants, pled guilty to concealing a felony committed by another and third-degree criminal sexual conduct in exchange for his testimony. His account of the events that night were that Miller had asked him to go to his trailer to help a fight. However, once there, Miller told him that they had a white girl that was offering sex in exchange for crack. Williams said he and Miller had consensual sex with Missy once they promised her the drugs. Gardner got angry and tried unsuccessfully to have anal sex with her. His agitation exploded when Williams told him to chill out. Williams then left the trailer. He found out the next day from Mac that Gardner had killed Missy. Simmons also agreed to plead guilty to her charges in exchange for testimony at Mac's trial. She said that her boyfriend Miller had told her that they had a prostitute in the trailer. She confirmed that she had seen Missy in the kitchen and that she did not seem to be in any distress. Later that night, Mac entered Simmons' room with a knife stating that he was, quote, going to kill that bitch, end quote, but she thought he was kidding. Jenkins, Gardner's girlfriend at the time of the murder, also cut a deal. In her testimony, she stated that she arrived at the trailer about the time Williams left. Gardner and Mac came out carrying a woman with a scarf wrapped around her head. Jenkins said that she was unaware of what had happened until the next day. Even then, she still spent time with Gardner until he went on the run. Oh, ladies, if your boyfriend admits to murdering someone, that should be your first clue that this probably is not a relationship that is going anywhere. Just saying. Pamela Holt, a woman who lived in the trailer next door to the one where Mac Miller and Simmons lived, testified that Mac bragged to her about the killing. She also stated that Missy was raped at gunpoint and that Mac said he was surprised when Gardner shot her because he thought the plan was to strangle her. Holt claimed that on a ride to her mother's house, Mac told her that the previous night, he, Miller and Gardner were driving down Rivers Avenue when they saw Missy, who was visibly drunk. They pulled over and she asked whether they wanted to party and asked if they had any crack. The men told her no, and Max stated that as they pulled away, Missy began calling them the N-word and threw rocks at their car. Gardner stopped the vehicle and told Missy that, yes, they did have some crack. So she got in the car and went with them to the trailer. Once she found out there weren't drugs, he said Missy didn't want to do anything. But Gardner held a gun to her head and raped her. She was then made to wash with peroxide and Max scrubbed her down with a steel wool sponge before blindfolding her and restraining her with a set of children's handcuffs. Missy was thrown in the back of the car where she put up a fight, kicking and screaming. Mac told Holt that he attempted to subdue Missy 
by punching her, but Gardner whipped around from the front seat and shot her. Rice had charges dropped for his testimony, which closely matched that of Holt, including that Missy was scrubbed down with peroxide and bleach. The defense requested that the judge admit hair samples from Missy to show that she had severe drug problem. However, that request was denied. The Charleston County Medical Examiner testified that Missy's autopsy showed a blood alcohol level of 0.254%. However, no drugs were found in her system. Also, there did not appear to be evidence of scrubbing or bleach, but it was stated that peroxide or bleach would not leave any injury that would be evident during an autopsy. Still seems like they could find it on her skin. Statements Mac made during the interviews to the police were presented to the jury. In one statement, Mac said that he, Gardner, and Miller were sitting around drinking beer and watching movies that contained graphic interracial pornography. He said they also watched Two Faces of Death movies, which I had to look this up because I didn't know what they were. Mac was mad at his girlfriend, who was white, and jokingly said, quote, man, I'd like to kill her and stab her. It ain't got to be her, any white person, unquote. Mac's other statements also sounded similar to those made by others who had provided testimony that Missy was looking for drugs and to party, that she went willingly to the trailer and had voluntary sex before Gardner brought up killing her because she kept asking for drugs and money. As was stated in other testimony, Missy was blindfolded, handcuffed, and put in the car. When she wouldn't be quiet, Gardner shot her. When Mac took the stand on the fifth day of his trial, he stated that he did not kidnap Missy, but instead she would willingly came back to the trailer and had consensual sex with him twice. He also denied allegations by other witnesses regarding statements he had made to them about Missy being raped and knowing that Gardner planned to kill her. Mac also testified that two of the three statements made by investigators were accurate, but that the third, given to NCIS agents, which was the most graphic and incriminating, was not. When the seven-page document was read at the trial, Mac's mother collapsed and had to be carried out out of the courtroom. One of the points Mac disputed was that he, Gardner, and Miller planned to rape, torture, and murder a white woman for racial retribution. He claimed investigators took the three individual statements he made over a two-hour period and combined them to create a plot. So in the statement to NCIS, Max said that two hours after making the comment about stabbing his girlfriend or any white person, the men watched a new segment on the beating of Rodney King, which we talked about earlier, to which Gardner stated, that's 400 years of impression. That's why that could happen. And that was a quote. Max stated that Gardner also said, quote, that's my New Year's resolution to kill a white bitch. According to the NCIS statement, later when they had Missy at the trailer, Mac thought back to that earlier conversation and thought, quote, this is the white bitch we're going to mess up, have sex with and torture. Mac claimed he never made that comment along with the one he was alleged to have said to Miller, quote again, how many years do you think this takes off the oppression of the black race? About 10 years? Mac's lawyer questioned the credibility of the NCIS agents and the statements they took. And yes, I mean, why would you trust anything NCIS would say over the defendants? You know, that that didn't even make sense. On Tuesday, May 31st, 1994, the jury found Mac guilty of the kidnapping and murder of Missy. A few days later, they sentenced him to life in prison plus 30 years, rejecting the prosecutor's plea to hand down the death penalty. So with that sentence, Mac is eligible for parole after serving 30 years, which will be coming up here in the next four or so years. Doesn't mean he'll get out, but it means he will be eligible. 
I just love that life plus 30. Yeah. Life is not life. Miller ended up pleading guilty before he went to trial to avoid the death penalty, I'm sure, and was also given life plus 30 years. Like Mac, he will also be eligible for parole in 2024. Jenkins, who pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact of murder, illegally buying two handguns within 10 days and lying on a firearms application, was sentenced to five years on the accessory charge, suspended upon 554 days of actual jail time, at which time she posted bail and was placed under house arrest. She also had to do 500 hours of public service, obtain mental health counseling, and meet with her probation office every week for a year. The judge suspended $2,000 fines for each weapons charge as time served and added an additional five years of probation. McCall's plea deal dropped his conspiracy charges down to a guilty plea of Miss Prisian and a no-contest plea to third-degree criminal sexual assault, which meant he felt he wouldn't be able to prove his innocence on that charge. The pleas were reduced his potential 75-year prison sentence down to potentially 20. However, he received nine years on each account to be served concurrently, suspended after serving just six years with five years of probation. So he basically just got six years of actual jail time. In August of 1994, Simmons was sentenced to seven years in prison, suspended for 572 days she had already spent in jail or under house arrest, one year of intensive probation, mental health counseling, and 100 hours of community service. Simmons requested that her probation be moved to Georgia, where her parents lived. On September 3rd, 1994, Williams' original sentence of seven years in prison, each on two charges to be served concurrently, was reduced to just five, which made him immediately eligible for parole given time served. During the sentencing, he apologized and said he was ashamed of his involvement and, quote, the poor choices I made. After the trials, the gag order was lifted. Gardner was profiled twice on Unsolved Mysteries, January 12, 1994, as part of the show's Rapist Roll Call, and again on May 25, 1994, as part of an FBI special alert. At that point, the last known signing of Gardner was in Ohio. America's Most Wanted also planned to air a segment on Gardner on October 22, 1994. However, Gardner was finally caught in West Philadelphia on October 19. Investigators and U.S. Marshals arrested Gardner without incident at a little store where he worked the counter and went by the name of Anthony Dawkins. The neighborhood kids who frequented the store to play video games knew him only as Tony. The tip on Gardner's whereabouts came from a woman who had seen his wanted poster in the post office. She told police the man looked like someone she knew who worked at a supermarket. I find it amazing that anyone can recognize a fugitive in a wanted poster. I don't think I could. I'm either not that observant or I just don't think I would know anyone that would be on a wanted poster. So when I was a kid, I was always fascinated by those wanted posters in the post office. And I would always be on the lookout to see if I could spot one of those criminals. And it still happens with me today. There were some fugitives that had escaped custody in Utah a few weeks ago and everywhere you drove in Arizona, there were like the flashing signs to be on the lookout in a uh, red GMC truck. And so every red GMC truck I saw, I was like, could that be them? Um, but they were eventually caught still in Arizona, which was, you know, interesting because you'd think that if they were looking for them in Arizona, the first thing they do would be get out of the state. But I never did find anybody on a wanted poster, but I really wanted to. Well, and that the one that escaped here in Tennessee, not far from where 
where I live. I mean, I wouldn't have recognized him had I run smack into him. But Mallory uh, saw a friend of ours when we went out to dinner and she said, you know, he looks just like that escaped convict, the one that murdered the prison guard. And I was like, oh, my gosh, yes. But I mean, if she hadn't pointed it out, I would not have recognized the resemblance. So I just guess I'm just not observant. I guess not. But you're frightening me even more. Initially, Gardner denied being the fugitive. However, he was positively identified by his fingerprints. For several months, Gardner and his defense team fought extradition. However, on January 10th, 1995, a Pennsylvania judge signed an order sending Gardner back to South Carolina to face numerous charges related to the kidnap and murder of Missy. He was escorted under heavy security to the Dorchester County Jail in St. George, South Carolina on January 13th to await trial. There were concerns regarding whether the facility was sufficiently staffed. According to the South Carolina Department of Corrections at the time, the jail should have had 28 employees, but the city council had only approved positions for 24 to handle the roughly 97 prisoners housed at the facility. The biggest concern was that someone would try to get to Gardner. Once again, the judge issued a gag order. Gardner and his lawyers were notified that the prosecution would seek the death penalty. So while in jail, Gardner got into a scuffle with another inmate and was punched in the nose. Officials didn't know what the disagreement was about, but later that day, a cell block friend of Gardner's tried to exact revenge, causing the entire cell block to be locked down. Gardner also went on a hunger strike and was charged with disorderly conduct and destruction of property. One official described him as the most uncooperative inmate he had ever seen. In October 1995, Gardner was transferred to a correctional facility in Columbia, South Carolina, because he was continuously causing trouble. Now, the police had originally thought that Gardner had fled in his own vehicle. However, it was found in long-term parking on the Naval Station. The Naval Station was being shut down, as I very much know, because I worked on the Naval Station. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why Chris and I moved to Arizona was because he was getting out of the Navy and I would be losing my job because the Naval Station was closing down. As personnel left, it was noticed that one car remained. So these long-term parking lots on the Naval Station were whenever the, uh, the ships went out to sea, the sailors would park their cars in these lots so that they would be safe and secure. And then when they came back, they would have their transportation there. And that really is for sailors that didn't have families. Well, yeah. I mean, I, when Chris went out to sea, he always parked his truck there before he met me. As a matter of fact, I remember when Hurricane Hugo came through, all of those cars that were in, you know, because they send the ships out to sea and all of those vehicles that had been parked in those lots were absolutely destroyed. A run of the license plate showed it was registered to Gardner. Can you imagine his car was there the whole time since he had gone AWOL? Nearly three years without anybody ever thinking to check the lot. Upon processing the vehicle, investigators found several drawings, one of which depicted a man holding a gun with the caption, Die, you stupid bitch. That drawing was not signed by Gardner, but others were. A handwriting expert was obtained to compare the writing on the drawings with the writings of Gardner and other defendants related to the case. So the trial was set to begin in early November. However, a change in the presiding judge who had ruled on all the other defendants' sentences and over 50 motions caused delay. Jury selection finally began on November 26, 1995. Security at the Dorchester County Courthouse was tight, with anyone entering the building having to pass a handheld metal detector. 
that really demonstrates the change in times. Now you have all of your belongings go through a screening while you step through metal detectors. Gardner's defense attorneys were Norbert Cummings, a former police officer, and Tim Culp, a former FBI agent. I wonder how you go from defending the law to defending a suspected rapist and murderer. Yeah, right? Yeah. Cummings stated he went to law school because he hated defense attorneys. As a police officer, he resented being cross-examined by them. It felt personal, but as one, it didn't. He also hated that defendants were presumed guilty just because they were charged. That seems like a real change Hmm. in your opinion. Both men had worked on death penalty cases, but did not have an enormous amount of experience with such cases. They had also, at one time, been on opposite sides of a death penalty trial. In addition, Cummins had been an assistant to First Circuit Solicitor Walter Bailey, who would be the prosecutor in the Gardner death penalty trial. So that just seems like very small town. <laughs> yeah, very, yeah, very, uh, you realize what a small world it is. The trial was finally set to begin on November 30th, 1995. Jurors were told to bring 10 days worth of clothes because they would be sequestered. Solicitor Bailey offered Mac a new sentence that would allow him to be eligible for parole 20 years in exchange for his testimony against Gardner. But Mac held out for a better deal, which he did not get. Bailey indicated that Mac's testimony was very important and that he would be called to testify regardless, but expected that if that was the case, he would assert his Fifth Amendment rights. Bailey offered Miller a similar deal, parole eligibility after 10 years, but was concerned that he would also decline to testify. But in the end, both men took the deals and provided testimony in Gardner's trial. So Mac basically went from death penalty to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 30 years to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 20 years. Got 10 years knocked off. Yeah. Yeah. On December 14th, 1995, a jury found Gardner guilty of kidnapping and murdering Missy McLaughlin nearly three years before. Gardner made a tearful plea to the jury, stating he did not want to die and leave his two young sons without a father. That's something he probably should have thought about before he raped and murdered a woman. And Missy was somebody's daughter also. Yes. Yeah, it was somebody's daughter. And I mean, just what he did was so cold-hearted and brutal with no thought to it. And it always gets me these criminals when they're caught and they're facing the death penalty or life in prison and they make these tearful pleas. It's just so disgusting to me. It really is. Yeah. He also apologized to Missy's parents, but her mother wasn't buying what he was selling. Gardner never admitted to being the triggerman, but when addressing the jury, he said, quote, what happened shouldn't have happened. Bailey stressed in his closing argument that the jury could not show Gardner mercy and do justice. He held a photo of Missy's body dumped by the side of the road and said, quote, this is Joe Gardner's handiwork. What does he deserve? A life prison sentence or the death penalty? After deliberating for just a couple of hours, the jury then sentenced him to death. After exhausting his appeals, Gardner's death conviction was upheld by the South Carolina Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court refused to review the conviction. Joseph Martin Luther Gardner was executed by lethal injection on December 6, 2008. He was just 38 years old. Here are a few additional side notes. The location of the trailer where Missy was taken was just three miles from where she lived with her fiancé. Fifty NIS agents from four states were involved in the investigation along with law enforcement. Upon learning that Gardner's mother was a Wayne County, Michigan sheriff's deputy, Missy's mother said, I quote, she's got to be torn up about this. She has to absolutely be devastated. Our sympathies are with her. 
North Charleston police said that the black female community had been particularly supportive of their investigation into the crime and that the first big tip on the crime came from an unidentified black woman. It was later determined that the tipster was Jenkins, one of the defendants in the case. And in July 1996, Mack, who was serving a life sentence for his part in the kidnap, rape and murder, was moved to a maximum security prison after being charged with rioting or inciting to riot. A 300-inmate uprising at the Allendale Correctional Institution began with a fistfight between two inmates. Several guards and inmates were injured during the riot. For his part, Mack received an additional 10 years added to his sentence. So I guess the 10 years they took off, he got back. So uh, that's what we have on this case. Like we said, it was a pretty, pretty horrific one. Thank you for joining us this week. Remember, we are currently dropping new shows every other Monday until the beginning of November. So be sure to come back in a couple of weeks. Debbie, you want to give our listeners a preview? Yes. Next, we'll be traveling to Texas to discuss the murders of Taylor and Madison Sheets by their mother, Christy. And we'll also be recording face to face. Yay! Yay! And also, we'll be recording a special segment related to our last case, the Lily Lid murders. So we will decide when to uh, drop that. So we'll be putting that, uh, most likely putting that on our Patreon for $5. You can get that episode. And we're going to be interviewing Justice for Karen Howell, a group that is trying to get Karen Howell released from prison. So until then, make good choices, keep your head on a swivel and stay safe. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of True Crime on Our Minds. Check out our Facebook page and website at truecriminds.com where you can see photos and other information related to episodes and submit recommendations on other crimes. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and provide us with a rating. You can also find us on Patreon and sign up to get extra content and support the show.